Welcome to the Extra Podcast, episode number 223. I'm your host, Gitch. I'm seated around the table with a number of men, but before I introduce them, this podcast is brought to you with love by the Mennonite Girls Can Cook, and they indeed can cook. Mm. Oh, can they? Oh, man. Who do we have to thank here? Lavella Schellenberg today oh. brought in... Uh, uh, cinnamon rolls. Amazing. Uh, so, no, car- can I just say those were some of the best, no, the best cinnamon rolls I've ever had, period. Right, Nancy, are you listening to this? <laughs> and car- caramel apples. Mm. With nuts on them. Yes. And then the oh. coup de gras. Oh, yeah. Piece de resistance. It was the <laughs> bacon-wrapped sausages. Mm. Which is my favorite Which are gone. <laughs> They're gone. And we just defended, like, every... Like Jewish religious observer, <laughs> vegetarian, vegetarian like honestly, I- Imran Daniel, who even though he doesn't need to for religious reasons, just doesn't like pork. That middle dish would have killed Imran. <laughs> but it that was, was amazing um, for us Gentiles. And this dish amazing. here on the end, the cinnamon buns, probably would have killed you. Yeah. So <laughs> gluten I, is delicious. P.S. Oh yeah. Paul Paul likes to play the I, I can't eat gluten card unless oh, apparently there's gluten in front here of him. It is. And then he's like, oh, well, if there's if it's in front of me, then I can. He's doing it for the kids. Are you a fakie? I am not a gluten. No, no. Hey, I've lost all respect for you. You know what? Here's the deal. My issue is definitely not as serious as Greg's. I appreciate Paul buying gluten-free stuff because it makes it cheaper for the rest of us. Mm, Bit by bit. Ah, supply and demand. The bigger the market, the cheaper the product. Love it. Keep doing it, man. Cheat away. Your theory is if you increase the demand, it'll be cheaper. I see. Greg, perhaps you shouldn't go into economics at all. (laughs) Well, I don't know how it works, but... I'm so, pretty sure. Here we are. Podcast. Okay, wait, let me... That wouldn't make it cheaper? <laughs> no. When the demand increases, yes, it makes it cheaper. Yeah, that was my point. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. This is what we call a cul-de-sac. Let's go back to the main road. The main road. Well, I will introduce all y'all. Uh, Paul Siemens. Good afternoon. We have or morning, the one and only Andy Steiger. The one and only... Next, we have Greg Harris. Hi. Hey, Greg. Hi. That was, that's kind of creepy, man. Hi. Next to Greg, we have Dr. Jeffrey Bucknam. Thank you. Do you have a middle name? Ronald. Jeffrey. Ronald. Ronald. Hmm. Okay. Mm. Yeah, and, Jeff's- Andrew, I'm not sure we want to go down the path of uh, <laughs> reporting people's middle names, do we? Well, I did. Well, I, no. I'm, uh, True story. You, you're an Andrew, but I'm actually referring to the Andrew whose last name is Steiger. Yes. You know, my mom named uh, her three daughters, my three sisters, all L names, Lindy, Leslie, and Lisa. And I dodged a bullet on that one. I You were supposed to be named... Lester. Liar. Lester. So Lester. if your name is Lester out there, Andy's glad he doesn't have your name. <laughs> I kind of thought of that as I was saying it. Yeah. You know, Lester's a great name. It is just not for you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so at any rate, my mom liked Andy Griffith, so sh- so she named me Andy, and then you're uh, named after Andy Griffith. I am. Well, that's impressive. Can we? Yeah, call, I feel good about that. Can we call you Opie? No, don't Please. ever call me Opie again. <laughs> Last but not least, we have our producer, our silent producer, Matthew Crocker who's here, and he'll be quiet the he w- whole time. He did wave silently. <laughs> he did wave. We've got to get a video podcast. 
No, seriously, though, we do want to give uh, a shout-out of special extra love to, to Mennonite Girls Can Cook for, for cooking for My us. My stomach this is thinks the second, you. This is the second time that we've had uh, – well, third time, actually, that I can recall having having food for the podcast. The, the first time was Embers, which mm-hmm. was off the hook. Mm-hmm. Rob and Madeline, when they, back, uh, they owned Embers years ago, which is – not owned by them anymore, but it's still a great restaurant up in Mission, and they gave us barbecue, and that was amazing. And the second time around, I think was bacon and bacon chocolate, bacon, bacon something <laughs> fudge, I believe, bacon fudge. Which you can't, Jeff. Just you know, the, leave the bacon. The jury's fudge. still out on the bacon fudge. <laughs> still, gotta, but we have returned to our winning ways. Yes, <laughs> with the Mennonite girls can cook. So if you have a generous heart or perhaps you're wicked in the kitchen, we will gladly take your, your gifts. Yeah. We record Tuesday mornings. Yeah. So can I jump in here, Gitch? It's, this is not the only gift that we received in the last week. Last week, uh, I, I made a pronouncement that male facial hair is ridiculous. Oh, we're going to talk today, about that. I come in today and I realize that actually four of the six of us here actually don't have facial hair. Kyle Meeker, after the fact, shaved his facial hair off. Did he no, really? Did he? Yeah, he did. And and I, here's what happened. Last week, I was sitting at my desk in the office, and there was a there was a uh, uh, um, somebody came in with a bag and dropped it at my desk. I looked inside the bag, and there were razors and uh, shaving cream in the bag. <laughs> and I thought, I have connected with the people. <laughs> that the people are speaking. So I went back out to the front desk and I asked our receptionist who pe- who dropped this off. These are her words now. It was an attractive young woman <laughs> who came in and dropped off the sh- the razors and the and the shaving cream. So here's the thing. This is evidence that what I'm saying is speaking the language of attractive young women. So if you're a young man out there and you got the you got the the stash going and you think that it's all that Andrew Gulovich and Paul Siemens, it's not. You know what? Right? Jeff Shame has a serious you. hatred for hipster culture. No, I don't. I just <clears throat> think that give me a break. Stop shave the thing. Shave the thing. I've got so here's the thing. I got a whole bunch of razors. I brought them in. <clears throat> They're right here. And you guys can take one. Especially those of you who decide... I got not. a lot of real estate to shave, buddy. Paul, take it. Take it, Paul. I will not. Well... Do you want to hold them? I will not. You know and what? In, you see, the attractive That's young the... lady that I attracted my way was... Well, we've been married 18 years. Mm, fair enough. So, you know, and now that she's older and more mature, she Ooh. likes the beard. Another so if you're a... Yes, like Jeff said, if you're a young single guy still looking... Shave it. Yeah, the beard, the beard won't help. <laughs> but you. And if you as you get totally older, let yourself go, you older, just grow it out. No. Right, Gitch? Isn't that the thing? You've been married now, got the kid. Yeah. Time, it's time to let yourself go. Let her go. A couple of our listeners actually wanted to weigh in on the discussion about beards. So if I may, yep. and I'm the host, so I will. <laughs> one sense. of our listeners says this. I'm apparently one of the three girls, we talked about that last week, who listens to your podcast and loves it. And for the record, I love my husband's beard and can't stand it when he occasionally shaves it off. Mm. Another one of our listeners says, I like beards. They're not as scratchy on your face as a shaved face. Thank you. (laughs) But perhaps the most... Age 12. (laughs) The most... Jimmy, age 12. (laughs) Okay, but wait. I don't understand the theory there. No, it doesn't work. Okay. No, I do. You know... When, after you, like, because 
my head, my head gets incredibly. You just came right toward the microphone. That's great. Yeah, you, you can all hear me now. I've yeah. come into the room. Uh, I, I get it. My kids, like after I've shaved, you know, and you get a little bit of stubble. It's pretty scratchy. It's true. It is. I have a saying for my daughter. I have an entire head that's scratchy. I have a saying that I say to my daughter, though. The reason daddies shave their faces is just to shave their daughter's cheeks. <laughs> and it's true. Well, I, I love my daughter. It's what, what? Apparently you don't there, Seaman. Shave their cheeks? That's save. Oh. Here's the oh. thing. <laughs> it's like, what? that's a terrible expression. <laughs> we have a listener who is, who is so bold, so audacious as to say, uh, Jeff, that you stand well outside historical orthodoxy I don't. on your opinion about beards. <laughs> so attached is an article. We won't read it. But I do want to highlight one of these quotes from uh, a familiar name we should all know, Augustine or Augustine or Augustine. There you go. Yeah, right. Augustine. Augustine. The beard signifies the courageous. The beard distinguishes the grown men, the earnest, the active, the vigorous, so that when we describe such, we say... He's a bearded man. Yeah. yeah. This coming from a man who kept a concubine for years after he was a Christian. <laughs> so, so. I'm, no kidding, Augustine. So I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that the silent majority, the people who are actually willing to walk into the church and deliver their statement, not cowardly behind a keyboard, but walking straight into the church, the, that kind of woman doesn't want the beard. All right. Well, I think we've settled this, and I'm right again. <laughs> Give me another one of them sausages. They're all gone. Shoot. Well, if you want to bring us more sausages, we'll take that too. <laughs> Anyways, if you would like to weigh in or comment or disagree or dispute or ask for clarification on anything we talk I about I just here. want to get one thing clear. Jeff, yep. do you dislike hipster culture? No, I don't. I find I, I like the idea that hipsters mm. want to make a an ironic statement about the world. I really do. And to be honest, I think hipsters look kind of funky cool. I think that's really sweet, right? Um, I do think it's funny that people who are trying to be ironic are so ironic. Um, that 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 trying to be an outlier now you've become mainstream. And so this is the part of culture that I that I giggle at. And so now, the if you go into any store, every, everybody sells hipster clothes. Everybody wears hipster stuff. So it's bled over into the mainstream. And so now I'm trying to figure out, like I actually am the embodiment of a hipster now, mm. because I'm I'm actually totally an outlier. The anti hipster yeah. has become the hipster, which makes you an anti hipster. Right. Which is what hipsters well, all which about. Which I'm a hipster. Man, thus, you can't. You can't. Thus, you are a hipster. Which, by yeah. the way, that cycle's not new. Think of the grunge movement. Yeah, let's think of it. All right. Okay. Done. Okay. Done. We're done. Continuing on. I think, can I just point out one thing? I think that Matt Crocker has now firmly established himself as the most hipster in the room for each and every podcast. I like, no? No, I don't think so. All eyes are on you, Greg. No, there's a, right now, though, let's just be honest. There in the room right now are, are three 30 something uh, white dudes. And well, two 30 something white dudes and one 40 something white dude. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, there's no hipster. The competition is nothing. Greg, you're the most hipster person in the room, and you're wearing a sports shirt. <laughs> I think Stiger you might are. actually you speak, have it. You, you, you How speak. old are you, Paul? Hipster is your native 39. language. Are you really? Yeah. I... Right. That's okay. all I to say. We, sol- we solved those problems. I don't know if we did. <laughs> if you have comments, uh, extra at northview.org. Uh, you can also, yeah, say whatever you want. Ask a question. Make a statement. We'd love to hear from you. So, can I get somebody to read from Matthew 7? 
<clears throat> I I I believe I have that open. You have it open. What part of Matthew seven? The earlier part, verse six and seven. So actually, why don't you read from let's say five? Matthew seven. I'm just going to read five. from one. Okay. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Can I make a comment about that passage? Just so we're all clear, yes, this is one of the most well-known passages in the world. In Christ, I mean, like if, if you're not a Christian and you th- you know a little bit of the Bible, the chances are that you know Matthew seven one. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Right? That's, I preached on it this summer. Yeah, it's quoted. So, so Andy, how is that passage misunderstood? Recap for me what you said this summer. Yeah, this this passage is. Heavily misunderstood. I mean, because take, for example, a lot of people will misunderstand it and think, oh, well, you're not supposed to judge people. I hear this all the time, actually. Mm. You know, well, don't judge. And uh, the reality is, is Jesus tells you to judge, right? Verse 6, right after he said all this, he goes, yeah, by the way, judge. Judge who the dogs are and who the pigs are. Mm. Um, judge who the clean and the unclean are. And we see in other uh, verses where Jesus will say, no, I, I want you to judge, but I want you to judge with a righteous judgment. I want you to judge correctly. And ultimately in this passage, Jesus is teaching them through how he's always done it through this. On the Sermon on Mount, he's constantly hooking these Jews in, turning things upside down, and, uh, and using it as a teaching tool to teach them no, that they're not, you know, he's not saying don't judge. He's telling them, I want to teach you how to judge rightly, and he's hooked them to bring them right. in to and do that. The thing that he points out that they've been doing that's wrong is the hypocritical judgment. I mean, that's why he points out specs and, he and says, logs and things like hypocritical. that. He's basically saying, look, if you're going to make a judgment, so hey, that guy over there, he, uh, he smells really bad. Uh, you stink, man, when the truth is, you, I mean, you stink, and yeah. everybody knows it. That's hypocritical judgment. And that, by hypocr- that you shouldn't. It's not. It's not that you shouldn't say, "Hey, that guy stinks." It's that you should solve your own stink problem before you say that. That's Jesus' point here: is that hypocritical judgment is what the Jews were doing at that point. Is that they were guilty of the very things that they were pointing their fingers at other people for doing. And so Jesus comes along and says, "Don't do that." It's but, helpful as well to know that this word hypocrite. I think oftentimes it's used in our culture, and we don't really know what we mean by it. Uh, as Jesus is using it, it's a Greek word for actor. He's yeah. saying, stop acting. Stop pretending like you got it all figured out mm. and, uh, and be real. Right. So anyway, the, the point is the text itself is, talk, is, is, is condemning hypocritical judgment, the part up to the, which you, you've read. Now, Andy referenced the next verses, which is the ones that I think yeah, you're being verse, asked about. <clears throat> verse 6 and 7, especially 7. Okay. Okay, I'll read verse 6. Good. Verse 6 says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Hmm. So the question is, why does God not answer our prayers, but give us this verse? So what do we do with this? So let me finish verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks... The door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Mm -hmm. So in everything you do do to others, what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. You know, it seems to me that verses 9 and following help to answer the question, why doesn't God give us what we ask? And and I'll read them again. Uh, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Jesus is saying at that point that God can be trusted to give you good things, right? So if that's the principle we're working with here, that God can be trusted to give us good things, then what happens when I ask for a snake? Is he going to give me a snake? See, I'm, I'm going to turn the question on its head and say, well, if you ask for a snake, I think that God's not going to give you the snake. If you ask for a stone and you need bread, I think he's going to give you bread. <clears throat> One of the challenges in unanswered prayer is that we think that we know better. We think that we actually know the way our lives should turn out, and we think we have the, the goals that we have for our lives are the best goals that there are. And I, don't, I actually don't think that's true. I think there's a level of humility that all of us have to come at our lives with. That we recognize that my life is, as a follower of Jesus, is handed over to him. It's an acknowledgement that says, I don't know how this should go. I don't know what's best for me. I don't know where to go. I need someone to be my Lord. And so you give me, Lord, what it is that you want. Here are the things that I think I need, and I'm going to plead with you for them, but I don't ultimately know what is is best. Jeff, don't you think it's too it's significant that this passage is, is in the Sermon on the Mount, and here Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God? And, and that ultimately, I think that, that, don't you think that a major aspect of this is, is about the kingdom of God? Even, even the, all the teaching that he's doing up to this point is about us receiving the kingdom of God. Yeah, which is a bigger thing than, than most of us want. To say. I mean, I didn't wake up this morning and think, man, the best thing I could get was a kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, even though that's true, and I should be saying that sort of thing. The best thing I could get today is bacon-wrapped sausage, <laughs> right? The Lord answered that prayer. But you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I have certain desires for my life that don't always match what God's desires. I want my kid to win every sporting event, right? Uh, my reasons are mixed. Sometimes they're noble. Often they're not. I want it for my own ego. I want it for their ego. But look, if my kid, if, if my, the goal for my child is ultimately at the end of their life to be the kind of person who can persevere through difficulty, and they've always won everything. Are they ever going to persevere through difficulty? Well, well, no. So in this moment, they don't win. And that's a good thing for the long goal. It's not a good thing for the short goal. But I, in the shorthand, I can raise my fist at God and say, oh, what are you doing? How can you possibly do this? How, what do you do? You know, and it sounds silly because it's yeah. about winning sports. But you fill in the blank with whatever it is that you think you're, the way you think your life ought to go. But we tend to have a very narrow view of life. Right. Well, we have a we we don't take the long view. Yeah. We have different goals than the Lord has, mm-hmm. and we don't take the long the long view when it comes in, into these things. And so it, the Lord seeks our good, but he, the good that He seeks is eternal. That's right. It's not a good that might might be defined as existentially satisfying in the in the moment. Sometimes right. the Lord gives us great pain and heartache mm-hmm. in the moment, so that His goals might be. Pers- might, might be seen and, and achieved at a later date through those experiences. I mean, Greg's got a special needs son, and I'm sure that he didn't, you know, they're pregnant. They didn't sit down and say, well, boy, if we could just have a special needs son, that would sanctify us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Lord has seen fit to do that, and it is sanctifying, Greg, I'm sure, isn't mm-hmm. it? 
Yeah, and and when you're thinking about that, the sanctification process. One of the things I was thinking about actually earlier today was we we only value the process leading up to the eternal if we've ever actually spent time thinking about eternity. And what what I mean by that is that I, I have heard people talk about eternity in glib terms, as though to just do something now for the hope of it in eternity is not a good enough motivation. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that driving here because I thought there there's a like there is a an inherent weightiness to the concept of something being eternal. Mm-hmm. That if we just spent time when you're driving your car safely down a road one day, thinking about the weightiness behind the fact that there is either eternal joy and satisfaction or eternal uh, awfulness. Mm-hmm. The weight of that puts everything in your life in a perspective where you are saying to yourself, Lord, thank you for giving me the children that you've given me, even if that's maybe not how I would have drawn it up. I'm thankful for who you've given me because this is how you're seeing fit to prepare me for mm-hmm. the weightiness yet to come. And so it it's only when we have a really, really short view of of life and a really low view of the weightiness of eternity that that we really dig our heels in and ask and and think we know best over everything. And by doing so, we we almost make ourselves out to be a god over what we're praying into if we expect a certain result that God will answer the way right. we want to see him answer it. Right. You know, I, this is something I was trying to bring up this this uh, weekend in my sermon, that when we t- we struggle because we don't see the world through the, the eyes of the Lord. Mm-hmm. We struggle with so many things. We struggle with reaching out to our neighbors. We struggle with, uh, with this issue of dealing with suffering because we don't see the world through the eyes of the Lord. If we really did believe that God is sovereign, if we really did believe that God, uh, that heaven and hell are real, if we really did believe that eternity is a long time and that this is a very, very small percentage-wise, very small portion of what we are going to be living for all those days... It would change the way we approach this. And so, yeah, Greg, when people say, well, doing something now for the sake of eternity is not good motivation. Uh, really? Uh, I mean, if you really thought that through, that makes no sense at all. Mm. The, the vast majority of your existence is going to be in eternity mm-hmm. after, after this. Like, seriously, we're going to live on the new heavens and new earth for, forever. I've even said in some classes before, I wonder if in 10,000 years we'll, we'll even remember. I, I don't know. Maybe we will even remember some of the little discussion. I can't remember what I did last year. Hmm. Maybe that's part of the fall. Maybe I will remember every moment of my life on, on this earth forever and ever. That's fine. But I, I sometimes think that these issues are much bigger because we, we, we have bought into kind of a naturalist hmm. When you die, you die, and you've only got a couple of years, and oh my goodness, if it doesn't work out, we're dead. Carpe diem. Yeah, and so I, again, I think the challenge for Christians is to live uh, seeing the world through the eyes of the Lord and mm-hmm. understanding that his values, his kingdom are the best thing, they're the best gift you could ever have, mm-hmm. and if you don't think so now, just wait. Mm-hmm. Just wait when you see it in all its consummated glory. And speaking as someone who has had plans change... You can, you can look at what you were asking for at at one point, and then see what God actually delivered, and glory in that, and see how the how the Lord's plan was actually better than what you thought. There even, was, yeah, go ahead. even though in the moment you're thinking, yeah, but this isn't what I asked for. Yeah, when I was in uh, in seminary, Chuck Swindoll, 
you know, famous preacher. He was there. He was the chancellor of the school at the time. And he, um, he said, sorry, he's the president at the time. He said, um, he had a sermon that was really excellent in chapel one day. I remembered ever since his main point was hold things loosely. How, how do you, his question he was asking is how do you live in a world with a sovereign God where your prayers aren't always answered? And like, what do you do? And it's, you know, he would say, plead with God, plead with God, but you know, hold things loosely. You're, mm-hmm. you're not the King. You're not, you're not, you don't know the, the end from the beginning. This is one of the things that I, I've been learning over the years is we, th- I think at the heart of this is, is the problem. One of the problems is, is that we think we know ourselves better than God knows us. Mm. And this is something I've been coming to terms with is that God actually knows me better than I know me. Mm. And I've been amazed. I've been so thankful for the answers, for the prayers God didn't answer mm. in the past. Because I now know where he, I see now where he's brought me, and I and I realize now, no, this is this fulfills the love of my like, yeah. this this is this is a part of my heart cry that I didn't actually know at the ex- time, but exactly. now I do. And had it not had it never experienced losing that thing and gaining what I've got now, I never would have gone into this this whole new vista. Right? It's yeah. fantastic to see the Lord's plans are always better, and yeah. you're always humbled at the end. It's just the best place for you to be. It's it's an adventure. And I think that's one of the things that we got to get used to is being okay with that adventure. What would you say then if we take that farther and talk about, let's say, somebody who's rather rather than praying towards something in the future or something we're waiting for, let, let's say, for example, you have a sick family member who's mm-hmm. who's terminally ill and it's not looking good, but we pray for a miracle. We pray that the Lord would heal this person and we pray and pray and pray for months, weeks, months, maybe years, and that person eventually succumbs to this to this illness. You know, one of the things that Christians need to understand, though, me, me included, obviously we pray for our family members in the, in the present moment. We want to see them continue on in, in this life. I want to continue living, so to be with my kids and these sorts of things, it's absolutely true. Mm. And you should plead with the Lord for those things. We're called to plead for the Lord um, for those things. We, I actually am convinced that death is an enemy that should be fought, okay, for, with all that means. With all that said, though, um, if you're a Christian, you're going to be healed. Amen. So, so I hope you know what I'm saying there. I'm, I'm saying you're going to be healed here or there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that what I'm saying is if you see the world through the eyes of God and you, you trust that there is an eternity, then, then whether you're healed here or there, the healing's not in question. It's just the timing of it. And the timing is up to the Lord. And I can't control the Lord and the way that he determines to do things. And again, won't the, won't the judge of all the world do what is right? Uh, the, the Lord has a great track record in doing good things for his people. Mm-hmm. And so I can rest in that, even though in the moment my, my sister, mom, brother, son is dying. Don't you think da- King David is a, is a good example in this regard? When he pleads to the Lord for his child, yeah, uh, but then at, at the end of the day, he he is um, okay. Peace. Is it peace with God's God's decision? Yep. And he continues on. Yeah, he goes and worships. Actually, right, he, he prays and prays and prays, and then the Lord determines that he that he's going to take the child's life, and then then he goes and worships the Lord. As soon as it's as it's over, the child's life is over. The, the, this is yeah. for me. Like, I, I, man, if I wasn't a Christian, I don't even know if I would have had kids. I mean, you know, there's that, that famous saying, you know, is it better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all? And, mm. and I, 
this this for me as a Christian, I think that really lets, sets us free to actually live yeah. is because we know that our hope isn't just found in the here and now, yep. but that we live for a much greater hope to come. And the Apostle Paul continually talks about this throughout his letters, that his hope is set on uh, on the life to come, on eternity with his, with his Lord and Savior, and that he can handle all kinds of hardships in the here and now, knowing what's to come. Yeah, this is one of the real problems these days with what the, some of the, the thinking that's gone on in the Christian setting. There are people who... The, who have uh, re- rejected or reacted against the church's longstanding tradition of talking about eternity and of mm-hmm. heaven and stuff. And people say, well, I don't want to talk about heaven because, you know, it gets us, it makes, removes us from this earth and things. And I, look, I get what they're saying. I understand you can, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. It's possible to do that. Although, I've I got to be honest, I think the greater danger is just to forget about the hope. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the hope, man, you're hooped. I don't know what you're going to do. And so, I don't know. I, I, I reject the rejection. <laughs> I would ma- rather hope. Well, we have such a tendency to do this, to just swing from one pendulum to one side of the pendulum to the other, right? Like from, from believing that, like people who don't want to believe in God's sovereignty because, well, God is love, so how can he be, how can he be in control of, of everything that's going on in the world if he's a God of love? And so they reject it. But mm. There's, the Bible often gives us tensions, mm. right, between God's sovereignty and human responsibility or God's justice and God's love. And it seems like there's an incompatibility, but they actually aren't incompatible. But we also don't have to worry ourselves with trying to solve these things. Right. Mm. Great. Well, we solved that, didn't we? We did. Oh, it only took a couple minutes. Next. I'm going to go on vacation. <laughs> going to get more than bacon wraps. <laughs> Uh, it's actually fitting that we kind of wrap that up talking a little bit about heaven because this next question uh, is sort of regarding heaven. So we talked a few weeks ago about original sin and how man in the garden, Adam and Eve, were given a choice or they had the freedom to choose. And what did we choose? They chose to rebel. So the question here it's getting at um, is, is, well, why did he have to let us fall into sin? That's the first question. And they kind of answer it because... Because we had to have a choice. In other words, God couldn't have made us robots to just always choose sort of the default, right? What we're programmed to do. So the question here, the, the real question behind this, um, is asking, why did we get the choice then and not in heaven where there will, where there will be no sin? Mm. Why did they have the choice? Why do we have the choice in creation but well, not later? I was just going to say that maybe it might be good just to even frame this, that not all Christians would even agree with the way this is being phrased, that you have infra and supra lapsarians. Maybe mm-hmm. Jeff could just talk, <laughs> just yeah. take a moment to just even mention that there's different opinion even on that. Yeah, you know, the, the question, the question uh, historically among philosophers has been answered. Like, why, So the question that's, that's being asked is why, why was Adam put in a garden and allowed to sin, Okay. Uh, the question that some philosophers have added is that, well, look, God can't, as it's been stated here, God, God doesn't want robots, uh, so in order for him to have a, people who are going to respond to him, he needed to create uh, people who are have a modicum of freedom in terms of their will. Um, this buys into a certain view of, of freedom called libertarian freedom, which uh, some at the table hold, others don't. I wave that flag. Yeah. Um, and that's that's fine. There there's a lot to be said for it, uh, but I, well, but <laughs> I I would say that the, you know the way I approach this question is is more um, it's 
going to sound really snide. It's more God-centered than Andy. <laughs> no, I, but I'm Thanks, say, what Jeff. I'd say, what I, the question we have to ask is, what is God after? What is God after by setting up his universe the way he set it up? Because he didn't set it up any way he wants. And so my response to the question is, well, look, if there was no fall, right? So if there was no fruit and there was no serpent, there was no fall in the garden, there was no sin, then there are certain character traits of God that you would never, never know anything about. Mm. And if you don't know certain character traits of God, I think you're anemic. I actually think that the goal of the universe and its creation was to display the glory of God. And the glory of God is seen in the expression of his character at every point. So if you see the love of God, God gets glory. If you see the wrath of God, God gets glory. If you see the justice of God, God gets glory. If you see the grace of God, God gets glory. You're not going to see the grace, wrath, justice, and ultimately love of God if there's no sin, if there's no cross, mm-hmm. if there's, you're, you're, what are you going to glory in to the praise of his glorious grace for all eternity if this didn't happen? And so I'm going to argue that, it, yes, it's part of God's plan, mm-hmm. that Christ, the plan to redeem a people uh, and a cross and the death of the Son of God and his resurrection was all part of God's eternal plan. And all of it is a beautiful, uh, the most glorious flower. It's the most glorious piece of art that anyone has ever seen or could ever see, and it displays God in his full grandeur. And that's what will glorify him for forever and ever. So I I hope you see what I'm doing there. I'm I'm just approaching the question from from the flip side saying, what is God, what's God doing mm-hmm. in this, as opposed to this is unfair for us? Yeah, and there's, there's a verse um, in Revelation 13. Now, Revelation, for people who are listening, it's not just about crazy things that are going to happen in the end. It's actually all about God's glory and his plan for eternity for all of us, whoever it is. So, uh, But... In Revelation 13, verse 8, talks to, uh, has a very interesting words here. So take a listen. Um, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. There's a translation challenge here, too, that people, some of the translations will say in that verse that, uh, that it wasn't the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, but it's the people's names of the book of life have been written for the transla- foundation of the world. And so there's a little bit of challenge, but I hold the viewpoint to the one, that, I think you just read the ESV. Uh, NIV. NIV. So I hold the viewpoint that the NIV has there, which is that the plan to slay the son mm-hmm. from the foundation of the world w- was, was there. Mm-hmm. And th- it was due to God's eternal plan to bring this about. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, one of the things I think is just helpful to know is, so I would I wave the flag of libertarian freedom, but yep. I, I still agree with Jeff that the God's goal is to bring glory to Himself. The the that this is all about the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just arrive at it at a different perspective, mm-hmm. and I and uh, and so I, I I value both both ways of of going about it. I think there's different ways to approach the same thing. So the question the question is asked at the end of this it, though is okay, but what about heaven? Uh, what about heaven? I, my view has has been and continues to be that heaven will be in heaven. And I'm re- relying. I should shout out to J.P. Moreland at this point. Like I, I, he he actually said one day in a class that the reason we won't sin in heaven is because sin will look like dog poo <laughs> in heaven. 
uh, and it that that because of the experience, because of what's happened, that we just we would still have the freedom, but it just wouldn't happen. JP would say that this life is in many ways like a history lesson, mm. and that in heaven we have this history lesson to look back on right. uh, of why you wouldn't choose free, uh, sin. I've kind of approached it, though, from a little bit different perspective in the idea of epistemic distance, this idea... You're going to have to explain those words. Yeah. The the idea of epistemic distance is this idea, particularly for me holding a libertarian freedom view, that there needs to be a certain level of distance between us and God for me to maintain a level of freedom. Um, Not to get too deep into this, the idea works out kind of like this for fun. Uh, Um. Oh, I was trying to think of the theologian, that Danish theologian uh, that came up with this uh, idea of epistemic distance Kierkegaard? is Kierkegaard. Danish. Mm, Danish. Uh, at any rate, the idea is simply like this. If God is the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most wealthy, uh, he in many ways would be incredibly seductive. It would, it would seem very difficult to do anything other than what this God has asked of you. Mm. So it seems as though there would need to require at some level of distance between myself and God in order for me to operate. Whereas I would see that when we, when we come into relationship the way it was meant to be in heaven with God, that that gap has been traversed. Mm. So I, I just I, I see it from a little bit different perspective. But wouldn't it be sin that has just blocked, has sh- um, shrouded our view of that right now? Well, it would, but I think the Old Testament gives us a lot of uh, evidence that there needed to be a level, there, there needs to be a certain level of distance between us and God that you can't see God's face. That, right, but I would say that the Old Testament texts that you're going to point to are going to be after the fall, because it was before the fall that he, he walked in the garden, God walked in the garden. Right, so if we go back to the garden, I would say that there still needed to be a certain level of distance between yeah. God's presence and, and myself, because the question that I have to ask then is, well, then why did they fall? Now, you know, like, because if they were in God's presence and his presence is so wonderful, then why ever want to leave that presence? I mean, this is the same question we have to ask of Lucifer. Mm. Well, why, why would why would demon like why would angels want to rebel against God if He's perfect and all loving and and wonderfully great? And I'd say, well, it would seem that there must have been a certain level of distance between. I think the Bible's answer to that is that they were deceived into doing it. Uh, I don't. Satan wasn't. There's we don't have a whole lot of information about That's how the true. fall of the angels happened. But I mean, I, I would say that the biblical material uh, says that that she was she was, Eve was deceived into it. What's interesting is Adam chose willfully. Mm. So they, it's it's an act, a willful act of rebellion yeah. against against which is, God, which is the definition of sin. The question, the question that they're asking was a really good one. That that the emailer is asking is okay, but in heaven we're still gonna ha- we're gonna yeah. be right. It, we're gonna be back to the garden state, right? Right. And if they fell, why wouldn't we fall as well? I, my argument there, it's I think similar to yours, yeah. which is I actually think that the history lesson will be quite profound for us. That it will just be so disgusting. The desire to be like God without God, we just won't won't exist there. What do you think, too, though, of this idea that's often talked about, like in the book of Hebrews, that we are sealed with Christ? This, to me, I've kind of thought in many in the same the same idea that there is an intimacy that I have with God that wasn't previously there before. Right. I want to look at. I do, I'm just going to want to look at those actual places where that word is used. And the reason I'm saying that is because uh, I, don't, I don't want to lift it out of its context. The language of sealing there, if, if, if it's in Hebrews that you're referring to, uh, my, my guess would be that 
the author's using the word seal as a promise that you will finish the race, which is very much in line with what he's trying to say. I hope you understand what I'm saying. I don't want to make yeah. more out of the word usage than what the author intends in those particular locations. Would you think, though, Jeff, that Adam and Eve's relationship to God in the garden is the same level of the relationship that we would have with God that we don't have, that it's identical, that we wouldn't have any... Right now. I actually think heaven. our relationship with God in heaven right. will be better than Adam and Eve's. That's my point. Right. Okay. But, uh, but I, again, the reason that it would be better is because we see the full gamut of the glory of God in the cross. Again, a- agreed. Right. Uh, and so then there's all different things that are taking place. you got the history lesson thing taking yep. place, and then the, the glory of God displayed through the cross. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Yep. You guys get along. <laughs> well, this we didn't is, talk about it. I mean, can there we are all things, hold hands? There are little pieces in there that I want to challenge Andy on in terms of... But let's just all hold hands instead. Ter- <laughs> certain things about, about the, the comparison between Adam and Eve, for example, because the argument of many libertarians is, well, God... What God does in order to bring people to salvation is he lifts them up out of their depravity to a point basically where they're the same as Adam and Eve in the garden. And so we, and those people can't choose, or those people when they get lifted up out of that depravity, some choose God and some don't. What that's essentially saying is that there are some people who are better than Adam and Eve. Given the same kind of circumstances, they would have chosen rightly. And I'm tr- I, d- I have no idea how, how that follows biblically, hmm. that we're all born in sin and trespasses, and the, the reason Adam and Eve's sin is so profound and universally effective for everyone who's born is because we would have done the same thing given the circumstances. And yet, the viewpoint of a libertarian is saying, no, we wouldn't. There are a lot of people who are Christians today who chose not to do that. In fact, they chose, even with their sinfulness, that they living in a sinful world, that they would choose for God. So Adam and Eve are kind of outliers when it comes to this. Right, and I definitely wouldn't agree with that. I, I think that that we've all been born into to sin, we're all depraved, and that we would all make the same decision that Adam and Eve made. So when we think of <clears throat> this, this story that's been written before time, uh, f- for God to know all of this, that, that, that would happen. Oh, you're cutting out. I'm not doing anything. Oh, now I've got a delay. Wow. And, and it's coming through the speaker. That's anyway. why. If, if, if this were written before the beginning of time... Could we say, or could we then say, would people say that God is just conceited, egotistical, he's just this proud authority figure in heaven? Because that's coming through. 